Let's uh, turn uh, to First John again in chapter 5. And uh, we'll read again at verse 5. So that's page 1401, 1 John 5, reading at verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. And particularly the words of verse 8, where we read that there are three that bear witness on the earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. They speak with one voice, the spirit and the water and the blood. Now, uh, when you become a Christian or when you became a Christian, uh, you set yourself against three very powerful enemies, a powerful triumvirate, and they are often grouped together. We call them the world and the flesh and the devil. The world, of course, is a reference to the hostile, unbelieving world that is still in the grip of the evil one. It's against you. You are it. You are contramundum against the world. The flesh, of course, is a reference to your own old sinful nature, which is still alive and kicking within you. The devil, of course, represents all the powers of darkness, not just the devil himself, who are arraigned against you because your conflict is now with principalities and with powers. So that is the powerful triumvirate, the world and the flesh and the devil. And uh, as you fight them in the Christian life, you often feel that you may well be defeated. And it often feels that way when you feel the strength of these powers operating against you. And that's why even when you feel that way, it's extremely important to exercise faith, which is the seminal grace from which all other graces flow. It's vital to keep believing in God and believing his word. Because as John tells us, that is the faith that will eventually overcome the world. In verse 5, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So, if you keep believing, you will indeed eventually overcome. But of course, it's important that your faith is latching on to the right thing, that you're believing in the right object. It's important, in other words, that your faith firmly lays hold upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, you are saved ultimately not by a series of propositional truths, you are actually saved by a person, and you must keep your eyes firmly fixed upon that person, who is, of course, Christ. Your faith is in Christ. Or as John describes him, Jesus, he says, the Son of God. Who is he who overcomes the world, verse 5, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, I think that way of naming Christ is very important here. John uses these terms deliberately so. Your faith latches on to the person of Jesus as Jesus, the Son of God. In other words, your faith is to remember that Jesus is just that. 
He is the son of God. He is who he claimed and still claims to be. It's sometimes easy to forget that, although our dogmatics teaches us. And if you press the right button, you will speak that truth. But you must lay hold on it, that this crucified man 2,000 years ago is actually the son of God, who is still very much alive and reigning at the right hand of his father. Practically for yourself, that will mean that whatever the force of the world and the flesh of the devil, greater is he who is in you than he who is against you. You have a greater power within you than you have against you. And as well as being Jesus, the Son of God, he is, of course, Jesus, the Son of God. I uh, highlighted for you last week at the baptism what this name Jesus actually means. You'll remember that it means Savior. And you are always to exercise faith in this regard, that the Son of God is a Savior from sin. He's a Savior from the guilt of sin, from the power of sin, and from the ravages of sin. And all these are important. The guilt, the power, and the effect, you could say, he saves from all these. We've got to keep remembering that, and we've got to keep believing that, even when it doesn't feel like that or look like that. There are times when, like David, we say, iniquities, I must confess, prevail against me do. And there are some times, particularly, perhaps even when you're well on in the Christian life, when you feel you have made little progress, perhaps you feel you are even declining in your graces, and you fear that, just like David feared that one day he would perish at the hand of Saul, when actually he would not perish at the hand of Saul, so you fear that you will be overwhelmed by the world and by the flesh and by the devil. So you keep believing in Jesus, the Son of God. But this is where it becomes perhaps in some ways a little more mysterious because he connects Jesus, the Son of God, in a very unexpected way, with water and with blood. So who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is related to water and to blood. So he goes on to say, linking verses 5 and 6, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, this is he who came by water and blood. Jesus the Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And then in verse 8, he tells us that there are three bearing witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one or speak with one voice. So somehow, the spirit that's the Holy Spirit, water and blood are speaking to you. They are testifying to you. And your faith must listen to their voice and take the voice to heart. Now, before we understand the meaning of that, we need to be clear what John is actually referring to. And it's not clear on the face of it what he's referring to. Sometimes when people read about water and blood here, they think, well, is John speaking about the birth of Christ coming in through the waters of birth and the death of Christ when he went out of the world by blood? Is he speaking about the birth and the death of Christ? Or is he perhaps even speaking about the baptism of Christ, which began his ministry with water and the blood which ended his ministry in death? Is, is that the reference here? Well, you can think that through, and you will get good thoughts from it, but it certainly runs into difficulties. I think it is better, friends, when it comes to understanding the water and blood, 
to let Scripture interpret itself. And when we do that, there's one passage in the Bible that leaps out at us where the three words, spirit, water, and blood, keep appearing together. Spirit, water, and blood, and witness. Sorry, the three words are water, blood, and witness. Water, blood, and witness. These three words appear together, and they appear in that passage in connection with Christ's death. Everything about that death was ordered by God. Yes, indeed, um, there's no denying the fact that Christ was taken by the hands of wicked men and slain. But as the scripture tells us, that was according to the foreordination and purpose of God. He allowed that wickedness to run. He circumscribed it and made it to work in accordance with his own will. One of the things that God allowed was that after the death of Christ, a soldier uh, randomly or apparently randomly pierced the side of the Savior. That is the, that is the only thing that happened to the body of Christ after death, which was in any way um, degrading or violent. It's something I pointed out to you a while ago that with the death of Christ, everything seemed to turn because he is dealt with lovingly, graciously, and kindly. He's taken down from a cross, the cross in an unexpected way. He's anointed with copious spices, and he's laid in a rich person's tomb. There was a, a clear divide. He is dealt with as a, a murderer and a thief and a blasphemer. But from the very moment of his death, m- mysteriously, his body is dealt with with great reverence, with this exception. A soldier is allowed to pierce the side of Christ. Now, the, the spear obviously went in in such a way as not to actually break the bone between the, between the hip and the ribcage. And it's not easy to see what the motive of the soldier was. After all, they had already ascertained that Christ was dead. The crurifragium, the breaking of the bones, was a, a way of speeding up a death on a cross, which wasn't often done without good reason, because criminals like that were left to suffer as long as possible. But there was a reason for doing it. But they saw that Jesus was dead already. But for some reason, the soldier does this, just pushes up his spear between the hip and the ribcage, possibly making sure. But whatever his purpose, it's God's purpose that matters. There are many things that happen in life, and we have purposes for them. But so does God, and they can run quite contrary to our purposes. John was at the cross. He was close to the cross. You'll remember that Jesus addressed him from the cross. And when he saw this happening, he was arrested by it. He was struck by the fact that the spear entered the Savior. And he tells us that in this, he says, as Scripture was being fulfilled. And in fact, when he records this in his gospel, he he actually pauses when he's telling the narrative, and he stops and says, I want you to notice this effectively. That is what he says. Let me just read it to you. It says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And then instead of carrying on with the narrative, he stops, as it were, and he says, and he says, he who has seen has testified. Now, he's referring to himself. I saw this, he says, and I am testifying to it. I'm an eyewitness to the fact that when that spear went in, blood and water came out. And my testimony is true. And I I know that I am telling the truth so that you may believe. I am a witness, he says, and I am witnessing this to you so that you might believe. Because, he says, these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. And then he quotes two scriptures. The first is, uh, and it comes in Exodus and in the Psalms, that not a bone of his shall be broken. And the second scripture, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. 
So interestingly, the piercing there is not really a reference to the piercing of the hands and the feet. That was prophesied elsewhere. That was prophesied in Psalm 22 by David. They pierced my hands and feet. But this piercing is the piercing that Zechariah the prophet spoke of. 500 years before the crucifixion, they, he's talking about the Jewish people, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And John sees that piercing fulfilled, not just in the hands and the feet, but particularly in the side. And he says, I want you to notice that that happened. I want you to notice the fact, to believe the fact, but I want you to believe what that fact signifies. Water and blood flowing from the side of the Lord. Now, if you're reading the gospel like that, you would expect that John would say more. You you want him to say more. Why are you stopping and telling us that you saw it and witnessed it? What's the significance of water and blood flowing from his side? Well, John may have put down his pen from writing the gospel without telling us, but interestingly, when he picks up his pen to write his first letter, he does go back to it, and he does tell us. The blood and the water, he says, are preaching to you. They are preaching to you. And it's your duty today and my duty to listen to the message that they give. In fact, he says, the spirit and the blood and the water are all telling you an important message. They are telling you something about the man hanging there on the cross, who he is and what he has done, what he has accomplished. Listen to the spirit. Listen to the water and listen to the blood. Now, let's keep the legal metaphor. And we'll look at the man on trial, who is, of course, Jesus himself. And we'll listen to the three witnesses who are called in his defense, the spirit and the water and the blood. Now, of course, the man on trial is the man on the cross. And... That man was known to people as the carpenter's son, the son of Mary and of Joseph. His sisters were known and his brothers were known. Later on in life, at 30 years of age, he became a prophet, mighty in word and in deed. But he wasn't crucified for that. He was crucified because of an extraordinary claim that he made. And that claim, as the Jews understood it, was to be equal with God or to be the son of God and in being the son of God, being equal with God, being divine as God himself is divine. I think I mentioned that to you last week, or if not the week before, when the Jews wanted to stone Christ for making himself equal with God. It wasn't because they misunderstood what Christ was claiming. It's because they understood it very well. The Jehovah's Witnesses often say that they misunderstood what Christ was saying, but they did not they understood it all too well. I mean, do we really think that Jews who are expert in the Hebrew language and uh, many of them Greek speakers, do you think that they really misunderstood the nature of his claims? They understood it very well. When Christ was claiming to be someone, he was claiming to be the great I am. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God, thou sayest rightly? He does claim to be exactly that. So today, as we seek to be saved from sin, from its sin, its power, and its misery, we are looking to the man that hung there 2,000 years ago. And you know, to the world, and maybe even to some of yourselves, that still sounds quite absurd. And it's a charge that can easily be leveled against Christianity. You see, do you honestly believe that the decisive event in world history was the crucifixion of an obscure man who never left his own country 2,000 years ago? Do you you really believe that that is the most decisive event in world history? And what's more, do do you actually believe that this world will one day be wound up and totally transformed and regenerated by that same man who hung there on a cross 2,000 years ago? Do you really believe that? 
I mean, if you are to ask this man, suppose he was in the dock today, are you really the son of God? The Lord would answer, yes, I am. Is your name Jesus because you really are the one who actually saves from sin? Are you the one who has power in yourself to heal any man, woman, or child of their profoundly disturbing sinful condition? Are you actually able to say that you personally can wash away the guilt of all that they have ever thought, said, and done that was wrong? Do you actually want us to believe or expect us to believe that you can cleanse us from that sin, from its power, from the destructive power that rages from it in our lives? Do you expect us to believe that you have the power to present us faultless in heaven before the throne of God? Can you heal all our diseases and resurrect our body? Are you able to do, do you claim to be that? Well, yes, he does. He claims to be able to do all that. And you know, it's a wonderful thing to claim that. And it's a wonderful thing to believe it. It's a wonderful thing for that to be true. What the Christian religion uh, gives us and promises us is, is so marvelously comprehensive. Um, when we think of forgiveness itself, it's a wonderful thing. It's often been said that a lot of people who are uh, suffering mentally, profoundly mentally, have sufferings that are at some point related to a guilt that they feel somehow in their lives. I can well believe that's true. It's a more subtle condition than we would all realize. But freeing us from guilt, freeing us from sin and from its ravages and consequences, what it's done to our bodies, what a wonderful thought that is. Increasingly, as I live the Christian life myself, I, I no longer think of heaven so much as a reward, but as a, a restoration. I think of it as God at last making me. And making you too, friend, if you believe in the gospel, at last making you what you could and should have been by virtue of your humanity, by virtue of being created in the image and likeness of God. I mean, that's what you were meant to be. And heaven makes you that at last. And that's what I mean by saying not so much a reward, but a restoration into what you could and should have been. And is that not a thing to look forward to? Of course it is. But sometimes that there's that terrible fear that I'm not going to make it. You ever felt that, friend? Do you feel it as you're climbing up in years and advancing that you're not going to make it? That there's, there's powers against you. And sin is so repetitive in its nature. You, you're wearying even of asking forgiveness for that thing again and again. You're becoming conscious as you advance in age that that perhaps you're not going to get where you hoped you would get in your Christian life. Does that mean that you're not real, that you're a hypocrite? Does it mean somehow that the power that's inside you is not actually, after all, able to conquer the world and the flesh and the devil? That they will conquer you, that you will die damned at last, even if we thought you were liberated. And of course it is. A powerful thing, sin, it is a powerful thing. But that's what Jesus claims to be a savior from it. Well, John says there are three witnesses that I want you to listen to. And I want to take these three witnesses to the bar of your conscience and your reason. And I want you to listen carefully to what they have to say. So let's listen to these three witnesses. Let us take the first of all, the Holy Spirit. He's the first named witness in verse 8. There are three that bear witness on the earth. We're told in verse 7 that there are three witness bearers in heaven. I'll come back to that in a second. They are the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. But one of these witnesses also functions on the earth. That is the Spirit. There are three that bear witness on the earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, the Spirit is first named. He's first named because he has first priority. 
And you need to listen to the voice of this spirit in your own heart. And ask him any question you like. Who are you? My name is the Holy Spirit. Where are you from? I am without bones, but I have a special residence in heaven. Are you a human spirit or an angelic spirit? No, I am a divine spirit. I search the heart and I try the reins. Do you know the man who was crucified? Yes, I know him very well. I know him as well as I know myself. Because mysteriously, we indwell each other. He dwells in me and I dwell in him. And we understand each other exhaustively. When did you first know him? I have always known him. Because we always bear witness in heaven. I bear witness in heaven. He bears witness in heaven, even as he was on the cross. And my father bears witness in heaven. In what sense do you bear witness in heaven? Well, we bear witness in the sense that we all witness each other's glory. I always saw and see my father's glory and the son's glory. And they see mine. We all see each other's. And not only do we witness that glory, but we witness to each other's glory. And indeed, we are surrounded by a host of heavenly beings who recognize all of us all the time. Millions, myriads, as the Bible says, thousands upon thousands of angelic creatures who cry, holy, 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 a trifold exclamation to a triune God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Father, Son, and Spirit. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Very well. But see that person on the cross with water and blood pouring out his side. Are you sure that he is exactly the same person who you have seen eternally on the throne of glory in heaven? Yes, says the Spirit. I am absolutely sure of that. That man hanging there is the second person of the Godhead. And these wicked men who crucified him and those who pierced his hands and feet and who pierced his side with a spear, have crucified the Son of God. That's who they crucified, and that is his identity. But how was that possible? How is it possible for the Son of God to be in that condition? How is it possible for someone who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, to hang there in that condition? Oh, the Spirit says, I was present when that agreement was made. In fact, I was a party to that agreement. I and he and my Father in heaven compacted that that would be so. That he would take a human nature. And that he would stand in that human nature in the place of sinners. And die the death that they deserved, that you deserved, my friend. I was a party to that. Not only did I witness it, but I was a party to that agreement. What's more, he says, see that body that he carries on that cross. I wove it into being. That was my task in the covenant of grace. That was my task. I made him a body, which he took into union with himself. And even when it was formed in the darkness of his mother's womb, it was formed by me. So I recognize him, and I know that body, and I know that person. What's more, as you see him dying there on the cross with the world and the devil against him, it was me who upheld him. 
I upheld him. I sustained him. Because again, that was my part to play in that everlasting covenant of redemption. I was there. I know him. I know him well. And last of all, we can ask the Spirit, how do you bear witness to us now on the earth? Well, he says, I bear witness in this. First of all, he says, I wrote a Bible for you. I wrote an account of everything that happened, explaining how it happened. What's more, he says, whenever this Bible is read and preached, I testify to it. I speak with it. I speak in your heart and I speak in your conscience. And I am telling you today that that blood and water flowed from its side, his side, and flowed from there for a purpose. As John says in verse 10, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. That's because the Holy Spirit has taken that witness into your heart. The Holy Spirit has articulated regarding the identity of Christ, the identity of the blood, which we'll see in a moment, and the identity of the water. The Holy Spirit takes that witness in. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given through his Spirit concerning his Son. So you want everything established in the mouth of two or three witnesses, God himself says. Well, the Holy Spirit is witnessing to you today through the Bible. It's his first-hand account of what he knows. And he is witnessing to you, and you cannot deny that the voice of that witness is reaching. And it's not just reaching your ears. At least I hope and pray that it's reaching your hearts, that the Spirit of God is communicating with you today in connection with the identity of this crucified man. And if I'm not mistaken, you know it to be true. After all, this book that the Spirit himself wrote tells us that we all deep down know the truth of what it says. It's a strange thing, that, because there are many atheists in the world, and there are many people who who don't believe the Bible. But it's a strange thing, you know, because when the Bible is actually read and preached, you've got to fight against it. I was to to read uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. You wouldn't really have to fight against that, would you? Or Goldilocks and the Three Bears or anything, really. (laughs) That's fantasy or fiction or something like that. But when this book is read, it grips your soul, does it not? It reaches your conscience, fights with your heart. Why do you think that is? It's because it's true. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness to the identity of Christ Jesus on the cross, that he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. The second witness is the blood. We have to personify the blood to question it. Who are you? I am the blood of Jesus of Nazareth. I am the blood of the Son of God. Are you real blood? Or do you just look like blood? I am the blood that was in the veins of Adam, the blood in the veins of Abraham and Noah. I am the blood that was in Rahab the harlot. I am the blood that was in David the king. I am the blood that was in Ruth. I am the blood that was in Mary, the mother of Jesus of Nazareth. Is it true that you actually poured out from the side of the Savior? Yes, I poured out from his side. Is it true that you poured out mysteriously after the point of his death? Yes, I did. Why? To draw attention to his death, because that's what God wanted. He wanted at the point of death me to be poured out, to draw attention to what kind of death he was dying and what that death was achieving. Well, very well. But what kind of death was that that he was dying? 
And what was his death achieving? What does it have to do with you, with blood? Well, the blood says, I am a testimony to the fact that he died as a substitutionary sacrifice for other people. His, his death was not for himself. His death was for others. And that is my function. I pour out of his side to preach a message that Christ is dying to give life to others. And the blood that is shed, well, the life is in the blood. That life is for you. See, in the Bible, I as blood, I'm always connected with a substitutionary sacrifice. Every time a substitute dies, I am poured out. I am taken into a vessel, and I am taken into the holy of holies. I am presented before God the Father as a perfect life, and I am sprinkled on the mercy seat, which covers a broken law and which makes peace between God and man. Life. So that man there who dies isn't finished. And my purpose is to say that the life that has poured out from him has gone into the Holy of Holies and makes peace and reconciliation between God and man. I cover sins. That is what I do. When I am sprinkled on a mercy seat as a sacrificial offering, I cover sins, and therefore I make peace. So are you saying then that you have a message to preach? Well, yes, and that message is peace, that I am able to take away the guilt of every sin committed. Can I ask the blood one more question? As an old sinner, as someone who has sinned persistently, you might say, you might want to ask him, do you ever lose your power to cleanse guilt? Do you ever lose that power? No, he says, I do not. I can cleanse the guilt of everyone who believes, however great that guilt is. Suppose it's the accumulated guilt of decades, the accumulated guilt of rejecting the Lord and Savior himself. I can cleanse all that away. There is power in me. I am powerful. I speak of powerful, real cleansing. Um, again, the longer I go on, the more wonderful the gospel gets because of what it is able to accomplish. You can deal, you can deal with what's gone wrong in your life. Uh, you can sometimes, especially, especially if you're at the door of entrance to heaven, the devil makes your past life look so black and bleak. And he says, you thinking that you can get in in spite of everything you've said and done. And the blood says, yes, this man is willing to forgive sinners. Make no mistake, he is willing to forgive sinners. It's a third witness. Water. Where did you come from? I came from the Savior's side. Is that a natural thing to happen? No. It was specially ordered by God that I pour out from the Savior's side. Is it true that you came out after death? Yes. Like the blood, I came out after death. And I had to come out with the blood because I can't be separated from the blood. My role is to be connected with the blood. And the Holy Spirit saw it, and he preserved that record in the scripture, that I came out with the blood. Why did you come from the Savior's side? Because I've got a message about the death of Christ too. And what is that message? Well, it's the same message I've always taught in the Bible. Wherever you find me in the Old Testament, I'm forever washing people. And the message I teach is that just as the blood forgives and puts you in a right standing with God, so I am able to wash you and to change you and to renew you and to purify you. 
until one day you are as clean as Jesus himself is clean. But doesn't the blood do that? Well, the blood's the cause of it, but I'm actually the one who does it. I represent the cleansing power of God. Not the forgiving power, but the cleansing power. I wash. You know, it's a wonderful thing, again, about the Spirit of God in your life and what God's doing in your life. He doesn't just do legal things for you. He does actual things, experimental things, experiential things, if you like. When you go, for example, to God, let's say as a sinner, and you confess something that you have done wrong, and you say with David, purge me, cleanse me, and wash me, and renew me. He does that. He actually reverses the stain process that the sin has caused in your life as though the thing had not been done. (laughs) What other power can do that? What other philosophy can achieve that? What psychiatrist or psychologist can achieve that? Who can actually undo the damage that has actually been done by sin in your life? God can. Christ Jesus does not just provide blood. He provides water. The washing of water by the word. And this is too much to go into, but every time you come into living contact with the word of God by faith, there's a a cleansing power in your heart. Isn't that an amazing thought? That you're actually being washed, washed by the water of God's word. One final question for the spirit, sorry, for the, for the water. Do you lose your power? No, she says, I don't lose my power. Oh, well, that's what I find hard to believe because I feel I am not as clean today as I was 10 years ago. It's, it's as though perhaps you're the one I find hardest to believe. Well, it may seem like that to you but I honestly cannot be separated from the blood. As sure as it cleanses from guilt, so I cleanse from sin and its defilement. You don't always see the way I work. You're busy with one area of your life, seeing it dirty, but he says, I'm in the process of cleaning another part. And make no mistake, I am washing, washing, washing. And I will not give up this process until I finally present you faultless before the throne. So the three of you are in agreement regarding that man who was crucified. Yes. You all testify to his power. Yes. And it is evident in the lives of countless Christians who have lived and died in the Lord. Mighty to save. Truly, when Zechariah wrote his prophecy, 500 years before the Lord's crucifixion, he told us that on that day there would be a fountain opened in Jerusalem. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened in Jerusalem. He says, listen to this, how exact the scripture is in its prophecies. There shall be a fountain opened for sin and for uncleanness. Is that just poetic repetition? Don't think so. I think he is highlighting the fact that the fountain that would be opened in 500 years' time would deal with the problem of guilt and defilement. And you know, you want to know today if you're a Christian or or if you're not. Well, I'll give you a good mark of a Christian. I suppose there are several marks, but I'll give you a really good mark of a Christian. A good mark of a Christian is that You are just as concerned about your dirt as you are about your guilt. If you weren't a real Christian, you'd only be concerned about your guilt. Any ticket to get you into heaven. You see, the real Christian is just as concerned about about dirt. When David was confessing his sins, he wasn't just wanting forgiveness. He was wanting change. He was wanting to put right with God different spirit. Is that you? Are you wanting to be new, to be changed? And is your goal to be like Jesus himself? 
Well, I can see that you must be a Christian. Surely, surely that is so. And indeed, I can just close by saying, perhaps you can even turn back to it, because it's a famous verse. And let this verse um, speak to you perhaps more clearly than it ever has before. Just go back to chapter 1 and verse 9. This is a wonderful promise uh, to cling to. Whether you're just starting out as a Christian or whether you've been many years on the road, listen to this and notice how it seems to latch on to the fountain in Zechariah. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Two things bother you. Two things bother you. And Jesus heals with both things. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just one, to forgive the guilt. And two, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well then, believe it. Sin sick as you are and weary of yourself, believe it. Do Christ the honor of believing that he will finish what he started. Do him that honor of believing that he will finish what he started in your own life and watch that process resume, perhaps, again. May the Lord bless our meditation. Let us pray. O oh Lord, help us to hear the threefold witness that presents itself before us so clearly in the gospel narrative. A message from the Spirit, a message from the blood, and a message from the water. All testifying to the glory of the one who hung there. Jesus, the Son of God. One who is able to purge us and to cleanse us of our guilt. We pray that all of us would come to him to experience that ourselves. Bless us through the remainder of the day, and your servant, as he preaches this evening. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen. Our last uh, singing is in Psalm 16, which you'll find on page 17 in your psalm book, To the Tune Golden Hill. Of course, these words are the Savior's words, sometimes exclusively the Savior's words, but in most cases, we can well relate to them ourselves. At verse 5, O Lord, you are to me my cup and portion sure, the share that is assigned to me you guard and keep secure. Now, notice God has that portion for us, and nothing, nothing will take it off us. The land allotted me is in a pleasant sight. And surely my inheritance to me is a delight. Verses 5 and 6 and then 9 to 11, uh, we stand to sing. Oh, Lord, you. Yeah.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.